Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and uh, with me today are special guests, Tim Timothy Mallard and Mark Lavecki. Uh, Tim is a chaplain colonel of the U.S. Army, Office of the Chief of Chaplains, and Mark is the managing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can see all they have to offer at ProvidenceMag.com. Now, just so that the listeners can differentiate, Tim, can you say hello? Hello. And Mark? Hello. So... Tim, could you tell the, the audience a little bit about your background so as we start to get into today's topic, which is going to be centered around but not exclusively about uh, warfighter ethics, could you just tell the listeners uh, what brought you to this table today? Okay, well, um, next month uh, will be 29 years since I've been in the Army total in terms of uh, both uh, the reserves and active duty. Um, but I... I before that, grew up in the Army chaplaincy. My father was an Army chaplain for 30 years, and so I've been around this ministry since uh, 1969. Um, and in civilian life, I'm a ordained teaching elder, minister of Word and Sacrament in the, in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, and again, have been in the Army now for myself for uh, almost 29 years. Thanks, Tim. Can I call you Tim? Yeah, please. Mark? Yeah, so... Uh started off when I was a wee child, but I won't go all the way back. But uh, I became a Christian through a, a study of the problem of evil. I became a Christian in order to have grounds for hating things well. I uh, continued with my study of the Holocaust. As a young Christian, I was overseas living in Bratislava, Slovakia. I would do tours. Uh, I was at a, at a think tank study institute, and I would bring groups up through Auschwitz-Birkenau and do informal on-site seminars on, on the history of the Holocaust but also on philosophical, theological implications of it. And one of the questions I'd always get from Christian groups uh, would regularly be something like, you know, what do we do about this? I mean, Christians are supposed to be pacifists, so how do we respond to this? And again, I'm a young Christian, and I'm incredibly disconcerted that uh, Christians are supposed to be pacifists, right? I had already overcome um, the fear that Christians are prohibited a you know, glass of bourbon or something, and I reconciled myself, no, that's, that's okay, but now I'm facing this problem of pacifism. So that began a whole study of you know, what ought Christians to do uh, effectively against the problem of evil, evil in the world. Uh, long story short, ended up with a, uh, uh, in, a in a PhD program at the University of Chicago with Jean Bethke Elstein, and intending to do a dissertation on asking the question rhetorically, uh, does Christian love fund or confound uh, the just war tradition, killing the enemy in war? Uh, as I'm researching this and outlining it, I encountered this issue of moral injury, which is a, um, a, a proposed, if controversial, subset of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But unlike PTSD, uh, it doesn't necessarily manifest in, in things that come out of life threat trauma, so uh, hypervigilance or paranoia and the like. Instead, it manifests in crippling degrees of shame, remorse, sorrow, uh, things like this. And a, a very simple and truncated and, and uh, incomplete definition is that moral injury is doing, it comes from doing or allowing to be done something that goes against deeply held moral conviction. 
Uh, and then the short of it is that the number one predictor for moral injury is having killed in combat. And it doesn't matter the nature of the kill. It could be an atrocity, it could be an accidental killing, uh, or it could be the taking of the enemy within the laws of war and under the, uh, the, mor you know, the moral framework of the just war tradition. It doesn't matter. Killing combat uh, is the number one, having killed in combat is the number one predictor for moral injury. The problem is that moral injury is the number one predictor for soldier suicide. And when I encountered this uh, issue for the first time, I thought, this is the grounding of the dissertation. Um, so I, I looked at the question of, is killing wrong, but in war it is necessary, uh, which I think is, is one stream of Christian realist thinking from Reinhold Niebuhr, um, uh, from Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, so I look at that question and uh, I apply a Augustinian Thomistic framework which says, you know, no, killing is not necessarily wrong, full stop. The story is much more complicated. What's the situation? What's the intent? On, on, and on. Uh, and I think that's where, what brought me here. So we have Tim who hangs out with warfighters, right? Yes. In your spare right. time. Right. And so, councils and has seen the effects of war. Uh, absolutely. I saw it first with my, with my own father. Um, I mentioned that he was a chaplain. He deployed for a year to Vietnam served with the 1st Cavalry Division in two uh, very difficult units. Um, but he only spent like a lot of soldiers in that area when the United States Army was a conscript army. He only spent one year deployed overseas, which was very common back then. Whereas I've spent uh, uh, a total of almost two and a half years deployed um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, and operational deployments, in, including the Balkans. So, uh, yes, I've spent a lot of time counseling and working directly with uh, warriors and their families, but also now at the level that I'm at, I'm helping the institution think through the ethical implications of um, war on warriors and families, and also the moral formation of leaders, and how uh, the effects of prolonged war upon leaders can impact the profession of arms, um, and thus impact the nation and the world. I think this is kind of a cool gathering of minds because there's much that you two share in common, right. and uh, all three of us share in common. I just completed my PhD, um, defended my dissertation. The title is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics of Formation. Mm -hmm. So formation's a, a deep kind of concept for me that I've been digging into for a few years. Your PhD dissertation was also on Bonhoeffer. That's correct. Uh, so I did mine at Wales. And the, the general subject was examining Bonhoeffer's ecclesiology from 1927 to 1937. So I took that 10-year discrete time frame um, and developed themes from his ecclesiology that could be a construct for public theology in the 21st century. So I was interested in trying to uh, help the Christian church find um, a vehicle for employing its theology in a pluralistic context. And Mark, you're familiar with Bonhoeffer as well. You've read Ethics, so this isn't going to turn into a Bonhoeffer podcast. <laughs> I, I really do want to lean on, on on both of your expertise in terms of war fighting. So as a, a relatively educated sort of third party, let me represent the audience in saying I think most people familiar with the Christian tradition are familiar with two major uh, traditions vis-a-vis -vis war. One is pacifism. Don't kill, don't do it. Right. Doesn't matter. Right. Right. Yep. Second one. Just war theory. Mm -hmm. Lots of conditions, mm -hmm. lots of limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, Augustine, Thomas to a certain extent, kind of working on that too. So all of this 
all of this uh, on the just war theory side of things is probably a lot more complex than don't kill anybody. Sure. <laughs> um, my late mentor and first mentor, Glenn Stassen, worked on something mm. called Just Peace, yeah, right. which was an attempt to build on top of either pacifism or just war theory something that was perhaps less passive than pacifism mm -hmm. and perhaps more constructive than simply, well, here's how to fight a war. Right. So that's what I bring to the table. But could each of you articulate your relationship, maybe uh, Mark first and then Tim, your relationship to these two classical Christian theories of, of war ethics? Of pacifism and just war. Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my, rela yeah, my, my, my relationship to, to just war is committed and faithful and to love it truly. My commitment to pacifism is um, non-existent okay. uh, in a nutshell. Could you be more clear? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me equivocate a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, how, how, to, how to broach that uh, succinctly, um, you know, when I look at, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's of course all kinds of pacifism, right? And I, I can't remember where I was recently. I was at a, at a conference uh, with uh, Davenant Trust, Providence Magazine, and uh, Patrick Henry College over the, the last weekend, and someone was there representing a pacifist view, and I had pointed out that you know, he and Yoder had sat down at one point and identified, I don't know what it was, 27 or 29 different kinds of, of pacifism. But bottom line being, don't kill. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a certain, for at least a, a certain stream of Christian pacifists, it's don't kill because we follow Christ and Jesus was a pacifist, mm -hmm. don't you know? Uh, and when I look at, you know, so one of the reasons why am I not a pacifist despite being a Christ follower the way I would spin that is, you know, I am not a pacifist because I am a Christ follower. But to, to, to attend to the first question, when I look at Scripture, uh, even, if, even if you look at the red letter bits alone, I don't think you find Christ being an example of pacifism. I think you find Christ being a non-example of pacifism. Certainly if you take a, a step backward and look at the, at the witness of Scripture from the Old Testament, you know, through the, the, the histories and the Psalms um, and, you know, the prophetic literature, uh, you know, all through Proverbs, you, you then look into the New Testament epistles and the Gospels, uh, you, 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 you don't find, uh, I don't think you find the grounds for pacifism. I don't think Christ somehow saved us from the Old Testament God, who is a God of justice and wrath, and Christ is, um, you know, sweet and meek and mild. And, and all it's interesting that, that you point it. that out. I think that John Golden gave Fuller Theological Seminary that I took my Old Testament ethics from would agree with you. Mm -hmm. He he recently wrote a book in the last couple of years called "Do We Really Need the New Testament?" Uh, so well, he's he's really yeah, pushing back against this sort of um, New Testament supremacy of right. the only real way to to interpret uh, the will of God in society is um, to to look solely at Jesus. Right. Right. And I'm a big fan of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love Jesus. Um, I do think that there is a historical devaluing of the Old Testament mm -hmm. that we all know that Bonhoeffer identified in Nazi Germany right. because you could kind of you can kind of see the connections between Hitler and why his party would want to devalue the Old Testament because Jesus wasn't a Jew after all. It turns mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Bonhoeffer, upon learning that he was forbidden to publish on the Old Testament, promptly wrote a commentary on the Psalms. Um, so we've seen before moments in Christendom or long periods in Christendom and in the history of Christianity where the Old Testament has sort of been poo-pooed and it's not just Marcion or right. whoever, but 
is there are there any other reasons why and, and Tim you can articulate your position vis-a-vis -vis the two historical mm -hmm. options but in addition to that could you talk about why do you think that we're so uncomfortable with any kind of violence in connection with with God or the Christian story especially considering most other cultures don't seem to have that same okay um, a couple of reasons um, to answer your, your immediate question and then go back to the relationship between passivity and aggression. Um, I, I think much like the how, let me draw an analogy to the abortion debate in America, how um, the, the issue about abortion has been deeply impacted by the rise of technology and the ability of people to see a fetus in the womb at different points in, in its development. The issue of pacifism and war has been also deeply affected by technology, particularly um, the presence of media on the battlefield, and I think that really began in Vietnam. Um, so that, <clears throat> that, that, from that point on in the American experience of war, media has been completely present um, in or around combat. Um, and I, I think that medium uh, in has been an inroad into the American conscience that has affected national will and debate about um, number one, killing and more, but also number two, as we were talking about at the beginning, moral and spiritual injury in warriors and families. Now, relative to the issues of pacifism and just war, um, as, as a chaplain, I'm a non-combatant officially um, under international law, under United States law, DOD policy, Uniform Code of Military Justice, so I have never carried a weapon um, and even in times when I've been in, in imminent danger, have, have never had a weapon or picked up a weapon and fired. Um, <clears throat> so in, in a sense, this is a deeply personal argument for me uh, as well. That said, I recognize how deeply personal it is for pacifists as well, because as chaplains representing the First Amendment rights of all Americans, I recognize that many people have deeply held convictions about pacifism. Glenn Stassen was one of my seminary professors in, in, during my MDiv time, so I remember him and his, his arguments about this, at least at that time, as an example. So I want to uphold and honor uh, uh, deeply held pacifistic beliefs on the part of Americans of, of any confessional stripe. That said, like Mark, um, one is still left with the problem of war. You know? mm. So how, how does a nation secure itself? How does it uh, how does it use force? How does it authorize its warriors to act on its behalf in military action as an extension of political will? Um, that remains the domain of um, um, a legitimate, credible, uh, generally, a military force associated with any nation, not just the United States. So then. We have to think very deeply, and I think this is also what Mark was getting to, where, where we're in very deep agreement. We have to think deeply and lead our people to think deeply about how and when we authorize violence on behalf of the state. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to think deeply and very cogently about how and uh, what effects that has on warriors and families, and then how we care for veterans when they come mm -hmm. home. So those are some short answers to your questions. Mm -hmm. That's great. Just briefly to outline my position as sort of a Bonhoeffian ethicist, I, I think we're all implicated all the time. So 
choosing a certain school or theory or principle isn't going to save you. I don't think anybody comes out of any conflict or any... Once we started interacting on a kind of a world stage situation, if you have any say in a democratic society, you own a tiny, 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 tiny slice of whatever, who, whomever is representing you. And so I think Bonhoeffer saw that, and he saw any attempts to wash one's hands in times of war as futile. Mm -hmm. And so rather than coming at it for me from a just war theory, right. which I would lean more towards if I was going to, I come at it from the ethics of responsibility. Yes, and, and, and or, or as Bonhoeffer's other term, you know, free and responsible action. Um, Stelver to Trayton, yeah, yeah. stepping into right. the, the place of the other to act um, in such a way as they are unable to on their behalf. Yeah, right. so, exactly. Especially responsible holders of office, whether in the church, in the government, in a family, in a school. Um, so I don't want to drone on about Bonhoeffer. What I really think that you gentlemen have have your finger on that I don't and I'd love to learn from you is uh, the war fighters themselves mm -hmm. the, the moral injury mm -hmm. what have you learned about I know it's so massive <laughs> what have you learned about the the war fighter coming home right well uh, if, if I can jump in sure. uh, I think I do need to, to retread some of the ground a little bit in order to set this up, but it's to go back to, uh, you know, this notion of responsibility. Um, I think part of the issue, uh, as Timothy was talking, part of the issue, I think, is is we get love wrong nowadays, the modern church especially. I think especially in the Western context, uh, which is what I know best, uh, and then specifically within the Christian context of the West, our understanding of love has become increasingly sentimentalized, sanitized, maudlin. Mm -hmm. um, romantic even. Romantic even. Uh, we tend to think that love is devoid of judgment. Love is accepting folks as they are. Love is a desire that other people be happy. Right? Not happy um, in this particular way, but just happy. In a general, not gassy kind of way. Right? Not, <laughs> not yeah, human yeah, flourishing exactly. whatsoever. It's right. exact. Potentially, it's the exact opposite. Right. Um, I do believe that God made us and wants us to be happy. But under pretty limited uh, and non-arbitrary, we were made a certain way. There are a certain set of conditions through which we can actually be happy. Um, so when human beings act in judgment against one another, I think we start to think, well, that must be unloving. When we start to act violently judgmental toward another, and we say, you know, here you can go and no further, and if you attempt to, I will resist you. And the level of that resistance is going to be dependent on you, but it might include the threat of lethal force and the execution of lethal force, that's uncomfortable. And it ought to be uncomfortable, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's hard business. Um, where the responsibility comes in is in truly intractable situations of last resort in which you have no choice. I think the Christian chooses the victim over the victimizer. Uh, and I think that's what Bonhoeffer faced. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem to be a hard choice for you. It's, and it's not it's, for me, to be honest. It's, it's, not a, it's not a hard choice for me. Uh, you know, my, my pacifist friends will ask me, how can you sanction killing one made in the Imago Dei? And my response, not to be flippant, is the real question is, what on earth do you do? On earth, literally, like now, not later, now. What do we do now on earth when one Imago Dei is kicking in the face of another Imago Dei and will not stand down? Um, sometimes harsh words don't work. Sometimes prayer doesn't work at least not in some sort of immediate 
causal way. Uh, so if somebody doesn't stand down from grave enough evil, sometimes they need to be knocked down. Um, I completely forgot what the question was. That led us up to what have we learned is the but, question. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think I can follow on that because uh, um, it, it's a deeply theological issue mm -hmm. and should be, and, and frankly, from my experience with many warriors, um, they wrestle with this in, in an almost inchoate way on that theological level, level, even if because they're 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 biblically or religiously illiterate, or you know, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean literally, they haven't been raised in any kind of mm -hmm. uh, tradition where they can frame moral reasoning uh, from a religious perspective. They understand at least the the generalized notion of God, mm -hmm. um, and they often understand things such as sin and pain. And so how does this translate into the, into the lives of the warriors? That's where many chaplains have obviously helped uh, uh, the soldiers deal with this because they internalize this, 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 this great necessity. They, they, they might intuitively know that this is an evil and I, on behalf of the state, need to address this. Mm -hmm. um, they might not even think on that deep a level and say, you know what, my buddy over here to my left or my right is in danger and I'm going to do my best to to save him or her. But then in that act, there's a cost to that, right? right. And and they might experience a deeper moral injury or uh, as, as I've talked about, spiritual injury. Um, and, you know, again, to your question, when they redeploy then, uh, one of my observations is they, act, they often transfer that woundedness in a very deep way into their family system, because mm. they're eventually they, because of the American way of war, they get removed from their from their unit. They redeploy. They come home, and for whatever reason, they they transfer that back into their family system. If they don't transfer that into their family system, um, then it becomes uh, an immense social cost uh, on on an army level, on a national level, on a global level. And I think that's one of the, the things we were talking about this morning, that we, we as a nation are struggling with the immense social cost of moral and spiritual injury on warriors that may not have expected that when they went to war, mm -hmm. um, but now we are dealing with as a nation post-bellum. No, that's you know? right. You read Carl Atlantis yeah. and his extraordinary what is it like to go to war. He's got a section I'm going to misquote a bit. But he says, if you find an 18-year-old kid fresh back from deployment, combat deployment, downrange, and you ask him, you know, what did what did it feel like to kill somebody? If uh, you know, he'll, he'll you know he'll say something to the effect of, you know, uh, what's it feel like to kill somebody? I I didn't feel anything at all. Yeah. He's going to be flipping about right. it. If you ask the same kid 60 years later, if he's not too drunk to respond. Mm -hmm. He'll begin to talk about the sorrow and the heartache and, and the empathy. So there's a delay. There's a there's a delay. He catches up. Uh, what gets me is that you know I said earlier that Reinhold Niebuhr. I think if you if you summarize his paradox, for, you know Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Niebuhr was a pacifist. Everybody said, "Ah, oh, he's a Christian realist." Okay, he's a Christian realist, but he was a pacifist. He's just a pacifist who was willing to kill and to advocate for killing. Uh, he's a pacifist because he thinks Jesus Christ was a pacifist. Uh, more than a nonviolent ethic, Niebuhr insisted that. Well, the ethic of Christ isn't nonviolence, it's non-resistance. Mm -hmm. You don't resist evil, period. And so that's the law of love. Because there's a second love that or a second law that's incumbent upon Christians, it's the law of responsibility. 
and these laws or these walls are incompatible. And in this world, one, the law of love is impossible, mm. but the second, the law of responsibility, is actually possible, at least approximately. So faithful Christians do what's possible over what's impossible. Okay, so then we send our young uh, downrange, and you know they're loaded or burdened with this idea that killing in war is wrong, or killing is wrong, but in war it is necessary. Um, and so they take a tragic view of life. You know, I'm going to do what is necessary, but in doing so, um, you know, as Bonhoeffer would say, you know, my hands are now dirty. Not recognizing that dirt comes in different kinds. What's your intent? What's the motive? What options did you have? It's on and on and on. Yeah. And, and, and let me kind of, yeah. as a rejoinder to that, contra neighbor, I mean, mm. a, a contemporary uh, chess war theologian, uh, one of your colleagues, Nigel Bigger, mm. um, has written and spoken deeply about love as a duty. That's right. 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 And so uh, when, you know, that becomes a theological way to frame the, the impetus to combat evil and to restore justice and to, uh, to um, provide some sort of sense of social stability and peace. Sure. Um, one of the things that I've also found soldiers dealing with is uh, are these, uh, these theological frameworks or questions about, you know, is what I did right, or is what we did right? Is there a is there a is there a legitimate or a just reason for what we were doing? And and I think a helpful way to to uh, aid soldiers in thinking about that is to take that idea of love as a duty that I carry out an action for the other, right? And um, again, as a Christian, I have found that one of the helpful models then to to that is. When soldiers realize, yeah, but there's a cost to that duty. Well, yes, and God knows what that cost is because his son bore that same cost on our behalf as well. That becomes a deeply um, personal way of helping uh, warriors, I think, and families experience in a visceral way a connection with, with a God who suffers for them. I don't agree with Rachel Maddow often, but she wrote a book called... Rift, I believe is the title, okay. about how our war fighters over yeah. the course of the last few decades have increasingly been ghettoized or jettisoned mm -hmm. apart from the rest of society. Right. How would you two, each of you, articulate the, the changing relationship between society and our warriors, and right. what has that done? I, I'd like to complicate it a little bit. I, I, I mean, I, I imagine she's right, but uh, you know, this is not deep sociological research. But uh, whether it is or not, one ought to watch westerns, and one ought to watch many westerns. And you watch Sergio Leone, uh, John Ford. You go all the way back, and there's a pattern that you find, and it's that there is a situation of chaos, and the immediate community can't resolve. Uh, the conflict in which they find themselves. They're incapable. They don't have the, the resources. Into this scenario is incarnate, and I mean it quite literally, incarnate a man of violence. And the man of violence resolves the issue. He brings, he brings a kind of peace uh, to the community uh, that is characterized by order and justice and allows all sorts of other political goods, therefore, to now resume or to begin. Human flourishing. Human flourishing. And then that society says, thank you, go the hell away. They ride off into the sunset. 
So the idea that this is a new thing where we distance ourselves from our warfighters, um, I press against a little bit because there seems to be, there's the Western, and they're old. And we, we know we need the man of violence, mm -hmm. but we know that he doesn't have a place in the civilization he is now allowed to be possible. And I don't know if that's symbolic in some way, but even if it's symbolic, it's problematic. Um, I don't think in the eschaton, that we are going to be pacifists. I don't think in the eschaton, God is suddenly going to be a pacifist simply because there's no longer the need to exert force. There's always going to be uh, the just warrior capacity in Christ followers. It's always going to be there, hopefully latent, hopefully never expressed in the future. Um, but it's going to be there. We're not going to stop. Because God is not a pacifist because God for is us. Because God is not a pacifist, period. For, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that Jesus is willing mm. as as the Son of God to fight for us against the forces of evil is deeply imbued throughout the scripture and particularly the apocalyptic literature. I, I, I've heard Rachel Maddow speak. I, I, I have respect for her, uh, for her intellect. Uh, certainly, I, I, I think the, although I might disagree with her on some points, I think she's raised an issue that is, uh, you know, we talked about this morning in our paper that is, is, is frankly a, a a very poignant social problem for America, and that is, um, you know, one of my contentions is that is one of the, the seismic social events of the 20th century within America was the move to the all-volunteer force mm -hmm. in the United States of America. Because we went from a conscript force, which could be uh, brought on, trained, deployed, employed, redeployed, and then uh, let go back to the populace on a short-term basis, mm. to a completely professionalized military. Mm. Now, <clears throat> I support the all-volunteer force. <clears throat> I'm a, a, a member of it. But but my point is, I think that it had immense social costs and implications that we as a people simply didn't understand. And that it, in fact, altered, to a great degree, the American way of war, because it we have now created a very highly trained, very highly disciplined, very highly professionalized uh, military. And, and that's well and good. It's brought a success in war. But um, it's also very discreet, and it's set apart from the very people that we are supposed to serve. And because we are now um, deploying and redeploying and redeploying and redeploying and redeploying the same soldiers who are in the military for 20 years, 25 years, then we are compounding things like moral and spiritual injury in... So it's like layers of scar tissue. Co correct. In themselves and in their families. And that is an immense social cost that we never foresaw about that. I think I think that's what Rachel Maddow may be sort of alluding mm. to. For, for me, it's, it's the fact that many people don't know a soldier. Right. Mm -hmm. that's right. right. And right. certainly aren't friends with any soldiers. Right. What does that do... To the relationship between a society and its warfighters, especially when they come home. Right. Well, uh, Timothy, I mean, if I can prompt the question, you know, how many churches do you know that you would recommend a combat-scarred young man, uh, redeployed home, go to to find spiritual solace, community, someone to listen to their war stories that they want to tell them? You know, are they in plentiful supply, or are they? Um, in answer to your question, none. Um, the and, and I think that this is this is an immense failing of the church, perhaps 
from not understanding the context of the changing way of the American, the changing American way of war. Um, we have largely abdicated the moral formation of our children and teens mm. as future citizens in the polis and as future potential soldiers or warriors on behalf of the Republic. And we have failed to legitimate or sacramentalize uh, or consecrate their deployment and then steward their redeployment and their reintegration into borrowing a Bonhoeffer and Bonhoefferian term, the Sanctorum Communio. Mm. So we have not provided a context from in which they can come back and explore their woundedness and perhaps even seek forgiveness. No one's tying a ribbon around the oak tree. Right. Well, it, more, or, or they're more only than tying that. a ribbon around the oak tree. Yeah, so yeah. Or, or they're only gone. saying, you know, thank you for your service. Right. And, as, you know, as deeply appreciative as I am of that from, from well-meaning people, um, I think warriors and families need so much more than yeah. that. They, they need a safe community in which to come back and explore the woundedness, but experience forgiveness. I mean, I, I've I've talked about this, and you know, I'm I'm, you know, I'm the civilian who's never been in uniform who talks about how to serve the military. So I'm immediately discredited, uh, self discredited. But you know, I, I break it down into three at least epics uh, that the civilian community has responsibilities over three phases. One is pre deployment, right? We need to raise our sons and daughters to become the kinds of men, and unfortunately, increasingly women, and I'm going to qualify with that by saying women in direct combat roles, but you know, we need to raise our sons and daughters to become those men and women who can handle the rigors of combat, and we're failing to do that. Um, for all the reasons we've already discussed, which uh, we, we don't morally form. Um, and I've often said that the time to develop, or just like the time to develop a sexual ethic, is not the backseat of a car. It's too late once somebody's gone downrange. It's too late once they've gone to boot camp to begin to morally form someone in, uh, in a theology or an ethics of killing. In the, in the martial responsibilities. It's too late. By the time you're 18, the vast majority of your moral faculties are formed. Probably aren't going to change dramatically. That's phase one. Phase phase three is the redeployment home. Um, but phase two is is downrange. And I and you know, I sort of reflexively think, well, I have no more responsibilities once my son goes downrange or once your son goes downrange. What can I do? Well, you back up to Phase one, I can I can morally form those commanders who will help set the command environment. Um, I, I can help train uh, the chaplains who will oversee their spiritual care. Um, I can also release the military from this belief that they have to provide immaculate war, zero casualty combat. Whereas a, as, as a civilian, I can say, you know what, I, I accept increased physical risks to our troops. Uh, so that they can fight in such a way that it decreases, you know, in, 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 a, in, in, a, in some way, um, the risk that they might receive a moral injury. Um, let, and let me, let me uh, qualify my own remarks with just an observation. I'm in no way saying that, that my contemporaries who are in uniform today <coughs> are <coughs> um, morally inferior or have... <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. have committed war crimes or anything like that. We have we had examples of that, even in recent American military uh, deployments and history. Yes, um, but the vast majority, the vast majority of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, intuitively mm -hmm. want to do the right thing, and most of them make the decision in the circumstance, whatever that circumstance is, to do the right. Thing. But 
we as a republic have not been intentional in preparing any of our citizens, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, for, you know, for, for the, in, in large part in terms of deeply um, intentional moral formation or preparation for service to the state in any way or for integration um, in, into uh, the, the common good, you know, in support of the common good. But again, that said, most most warriors want to do and do and do. do the right thing. You know, you, you and I have talked before about uh, not just moral formation, but the fact that moral formation has to be so extensive that it's it's habitual. Yes. Right. That the virtues right. are habitual. Right. And so you and I, and you know, the three of us can sit down at a table and and take all the time we want to come up with a, a moral response to a particular combat situation. Yeah. But in the field, downrange. Mm. You know, the amount of time you have, you know, when somebody's in your sights yep. the moment you pull it's already the trigger, there. Right? The, the decision is there. And particularly particularly if you're a if you're a, a soldier, let's say a lieutenant, in a position of leadership, mm -hmm. and you have to direct the action of an entire platoon or of an entire company. Like you're a young young captain, let's say. That is an incredible amount of um, moral pressure, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, that that Don Snyder has talked about the moral ambiguity of the increasing moral ambiguity of contemporary combat. Um, so even though we're we're in a non-contiguous, non-linear, let's say counterinsurgency type of fight, um, that ambiguity may only increase. I would qualify and, by the way, say, apart from let's say Iraq and Afghanistan, places we've had even current past or current operations, Mark and I have talked about this. Or that that moral ambiguity in the future battlefield, mm. right, with autonomous warfare systems mm. and, and, and warfare increasingly fought in and through the cyber domain, that moral ambiguity is not going to lessen. It will only grow in complexity. So the, the, the requirement for the church as the body of Christ to morally form warriors will only grow. When I think of pressure, um, whether it's social pressure, violence, Whenever some kind of force has to be absorbed by some kind of object, think about the, the bed of nails analogy, right? As you get less and less nails, mm. more and more pressure is placed upon each nail. And I, I, I think of our, our mm. diminishing force with the, the moral harm of war and the fewer and fewer and fewer shoulders that it rests upon. But then I also think, and, and you two have articulated some of the pressures on our warfighters well, I also think about... Um, our civilian leadership, uh, especially at the federal level, right? Most of our warfighters are being commanded from the federal level through military leadership, but by civilian leadership. And um, in the past generation or two, we've gone from uh, way more than half of Congress having served in the military. Now I think it's somewhere around a quarter or maybe even less. So, so you've got this huge shift in the civilian apprehension of war and so how does that figure into the into the equation you've got all this pressure on the warfighters and then they come home and even the leadership who sent them there may not be acquainted with their realities I think it'd be better position um, to answer that well <clears throat> I, again I, I think that's part of I, I can tie that or trace that historically back to the move to the all-volunteer force because we have, we have not made 
national service really in, in any kind of expression, mandatory as an expectation about uh, responsible citizenship in, in the Republic. Um, and, and I'm not denigrating uh, elected leaders' uh, status as, as civil servants, not at all. But the reality is that, uh, that that was a shared understanding in the, again, in the American way of war in wars past. Right? Um, it, it was no accident that William Jennings Bryan, I think it was in 1891 when he gave his speech, famously quoted by Ken Burns in the film The Civil War, said, in our youth, our hearts were burned by fire. You know, he was a Supreme Court justice, but he was reflecting on his, his, his experience and the experience of so many of his contemporaries who had fought the battlefields of the Civil War. And, and, and we don't have that now. Well, um, yet we still have in the American construct for civil-military relations, civilian control of the military, and I would always advocate for that. Recently, I think I heard celebrity of some stripe say that uh, you know she advocated the military wanting to overthrow civilian rule I, I just cringed at that I mean that's mm -hmm. absolutely that goes against the fiber of every true um, warrior in in this nation um, but we do I think need to find ways for for all our uh, elected and appointed civilian leaders to to deeply understand the cost of war and the, and the warriors that they send to conflict. Um, I think a way to do that, even if a warrior dies, is to, to experience that through their family because this is something that we've talked about, how moral and spiritual injury in the life of a warrior, again, will get tr transmitted into the family system. Mm -hmm. As a chaplain, it's just, it's a 100% it's a certainty in my experience. Um, that wife, those children, that husband, those children will experience the warrior's wounds. Um, even if they are physically living, they will internalize that spiritual or that moral woundedness. And often that woundedness can, can, can become paradigmatic for that family for the remainder of their life. Um, That's like thinking, ima imagining that your Mark, your Lone Ranger figure, actually has a family back home. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. No, that's yeah. right. That's right. That that that's a great analogy. So I, I think helping our uh, elected and appointed civilian leaders to experience that would be a way of, of seeing the cost. Um, and I think that might that might this is kind of a pipe dream, but that might motivate us legislatively to support services for soldiers coming home a bit more. Uh, robustly, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but what I've read uh, briefly is that a country like Israel does this uh, better than we do with more uh, kind of a post-traumatic counseling, psychological debriefing. We even do it better with our, our cops, right? If you did mm -hmm. dis if you discharge your firearm, then you have to go see somebody and talk about right. it. But for some reason, we have kids coming home in their early 20s who have killed another human being, or maybe multiple human beings, seen, seen friends of theirs die, and what what's the dis, what is the, the redeployment home? What does that look like? Right. right. I mean, I I I mean, just, you know, Tim and he much better position to answer this. But in some of the stories I hear, uh, you know, earlier we asked the question, what does this distance between the average civilian who's never served, who doesn't know a soldier, uh, or a marine, or an airman, um, you know, what's this situation look like? 
um, one of the things I'll you know I'll read a lot or I'll hear a lot from soldiers who have redeployed home is you know I return home I've been downrange you know I've been in you know for the last eight months uh, even when I'm safely in the wire you know I'm not safe not like I am you know in Chicago that might be a bad example but in you know in most of America Milwaukee uh, Milwaukee let's say uh, they come home and you know p part of the problem Timothy has has got to be you know I've recently watched uh, the Pacific you know this extraordinary uh, sort of sequel to uh, the Band of Brothers. And you see these guys, and they go through, you know, intense com combat. Uh, and then they get, you know, those who, who return home get on a ship. And, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, and then they're home, and then they're on a train. You know, and another week, and then finally they're home. Or, or they, you know, they go to China to do security. Uh, and, then, and then return home. You know, you can be on patrol. Uh, you're best buddy gets disintegrated by an IED, you kill somebody. That afternoon, you're on a helicopter, you're in an airbase, and you're home in the evening in America, or at least roughly that, making love to your wife, you know, 14, 15 hours after picking your buddy's teeth off the ground, right? That, that can't be easy, that kind of transition. Um, meanwhile, all your buddies back home are bothered about the NFL draft, and, you know, maybe the price of gas, and this and that, and this incredible universal or, or universe of difference between what I've just experienced and what you've been experiencing. Um, and now I want to tell you my war stories because I need to unpack. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you alluded in that comment to, to World War II and, and, and how time provides yeah. a, a bit of a buffer. So I think that one of the reasons that we, and we certainly had had soldiers after World War II and, and all wars that experienced sure. what we would term moral and spiritual injury, post-traumatic stress disorder. But a, a critical difference was there was a shared burden on the part of of the military force and the society, mm. and, and both the military force and the society understood that, and there was a receptivity on the part of the society for those warriors coming back and reintegrating into culture. I think those are the two things that we have lost. Now, to, you know, to to follow your your uh, your example, you know, my first tour in Iraq, I was I, I was told you you've got to go back, you've got to go to this army school. Okay, you know, uh, I I I was so tired. We we started flying back from northern Iraq through through Kuwait, uh, uh, and then back. Through Germany to the United States, I, I literally slept for for almost four straight days, um, and then woke up as the plane was landing in Clarksville, Kentucky, which uh, you know where I was stationed with the 101st Airborne Division, and so in just that matter of time, I had gone back, and you know, the first night out, I thought, what do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, so I went out and got a pizza, you know, and, and I felt like I was. I've used this phrase before. I, I felt like I had been to the moon and came back, and I was just sitting here by myself. I didn't know anybody in that restaurant. Who do I talk to about that? What do I say? If I if I talked about it, would they even understand? And so, like most contemporary warriors, you just retreat into silence. And on on our side, so I'm at that pizzeria, <laughs> and I see you walk in, and maybe you're in uniform, and I want to walk up to you and I want to say thank you for your service. But I've heard. But that pisses a lot of you off. And so I don't do it. 
and there's distances there. Yeah. But really, I feel gratitude, but I don't know how to say it. Right. Right. Um, and and so the divide gets wider, right. and your moonness, yeah, you know, gets deeper. And and by the way, a, a, another effect is that now, you know, there's 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 been a sort of discussion or push or you know social approval of wanting to hire veterans. Here's what most veterans will tell you, most active duty soldiers. Don't say a word in your job interview that you might have any kind of mental, emotional, or spiritual problem. Just shut up about it. Because the minute you say that, you absolutely frighten off an employer and the interview shuts down. Um, and, and again, you don't have that permission to create shared understanding. Now, not, not all employers are like that. But that is a common frustration among many of my peers. And again, there's this distance between the republic we serve and what we've done on, on their behalf. So in, in the about 10 minutes that we have remaining, for an audience member who's thinking, wow, this is, this is deep, this is deep water, uh, what can I do? What can we do? I mean, I know in gen we have generalities, but uh, in the spirit of Bonhoeffer, let's try to be concrete mm -hmm. about what can a normal person do? What can a teacher do? What can, uh, you know, what can a constituent of a government official anywhere do? What, what, first, Mark, and, and then Timothy. <laughs> um, I was hoping Timothy would answer because uh, I still want to thank military men and women for their service. Um, and part of me wants to say to you folks, you know, you, you've got to understand we don't know what else to say, so yeah. suck it up, you know, and let us <laughs> We're going to thank you whether you like it yeah, or not. Yeah, <laughs> damn it, we're going to thank you. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do nothing else. Um, I, I, you know, like I said, I go back to my sort of triad of responsibilities, you know, and one of them is, is an immediate responsibility that doesn't necessarily immediately help those who are redeploying, but it's to raise our children in a way uh, that we raise them not just to physical uh, heroism, which we can do, uh, but the jihadists can do that too. Uh, so we got to raise our children to moral heroism, to know that there are some things that are actually worth not just risking your life, but taking life, which I think is the harder of the two tasks. Um, so we have to do that. So that when folks come back from a place where they've done that, they're not aliens. They're not moon beings. Um, they're our neighbors. Um, you know that that's certainly part of it. You know, then you get into the whole helping people uh, develop a theology of killing, which, however macabre that sounds, I think is crucial. Um, recognizing that uh, the enemy is still a neighbor, even if they are our enemy neighbor, and that uh, you know, and this is going to this is nothing to discuss in the next seven minutes. But you can you can slay the enemy in a way that's compatible with love. Well, very quickly, I was bouncing this off off a good friend of mine the other or a few months ago. And I said, if I lost my mind and I tried to kill your kid, me now, Sane Ryan, yeah, right. would want you to kill Insane Ryan Correct. before Insane Ryan could hurt your kid. For me, right. that's you loving me as yourself. I understand that. And so I don't think that's bizarre. Right. I think you just have to think about it. What would you want someone to do to you if you were trying to kill innocents? Thomas Aquinas said the happiness of sinners is the worst fate there is, right? I think that was Thomas, might have been. 
Augustine Somebody said it. I'm sure Thomas quoted Augustine on it if Thomas <laughs> didn't say it himself. Uh, absolutely right. And, and, and I can do so in a way that's commensurate with loving you. When I, when I punish my children, I don't relish the fact that now I get to punish them. Yay. It's no, I want you to be happy. I want you to flourish. And that's within certain limits. And you've, 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 you've transgressed those limits and, and you need to be corrected. Um, and just war, a just war, is an act uh, above all of, of retributive justice. It's a, an act of punishment. Something needs to be restrained. But you can do that in a way that's reluctant, that's in, in the last resort, that wishes all things being equal, that it didn't have to Exhausting be this way. Exhausting other opportunities. Exhausting the opportunities. Uh, to, you know, uh, John of Salisbury says, you know, one can, with the right attitudinal disposition, kill and kill and kill again and not be a man of blood, not be somebody who relishes the violence, but who does so reluctantly, but knows that at present there is no other option. Um, and not that this is a lesser evil, Niebuhr, uh, but that this is the greatest possible good that I can wrangle out of this intractable situation. Um, and then, you know, the, the, to, to, to jump ahead to, to the now and people redeploying now, um, and this is where Timothy's got to speak into it, is to, is to adamantly form churches. Uh, that are the kinds of sacred communities to which these folks can come home to, uh, to where they can be listened to, they can tell the stories when they want to tell the stories. Um, you know, they can be given rights of confession and absolution, um, where while they've been gone, this goes to the second phase of our responsibility, they know that while they're downrange, their children and their wives or their husbands increasing are being cared for. So they don't have to worry at least about that because the church community at home has their six, right? We're taking care of the people that are home and they don't have to worry about that. That's crucial. I, right? I, I absolutely agree that, that, but that takes intentionality on the part of churches. It, it, it augurs that, that pastors as congregational and communal leaders will lead their, their, their sessions, their congregations, um, with intentionality to take that on. That can't be done as an afterthought. Right? And they have to know their congregations. Well, they, so they know they that single mom actually has a has a warfighter husband. Correct. And but but they have to they have to then lead the church in strategic decision making to say, you know what, maybe we don't need to pursue the latest fad on church growth theory and being relevant to the culture. Maybe since we have a Navy base down the road or we have a Marine Corps base, maybe we ought to develop um, an intentional program where we work in concert with the military chaplains on this post to receive warriors and warrior families back home, and that becomes a permanent ministry of this church to this community, right? Mm -hmm. That has to be done with intentionality. I, I think another thing that has to be done is for non-governmental institutions, um, particularly, um, I'm thinking here of universities, colleges, um, uh, seminaries, uh, to create programs that are receptive of communities of veterans who may be wounded. Um, I've, I've, I've heard of, as an example, one university in England that has carte blanche made the decision that any warrior who is diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder um, but has still cognitive faculties and abilities will be granted admittance to the university and the university will pay for their tuition for a full undergraduate program. I can't think of an American university that has made that kind of offer to, to American warriors. You get 10% off ice cream and stuff. Right. <laughs> which, which, again, those are, those are, those are, those are nice gestures, but now we're talking about societal problems, yeah. so they require societal 
I'm, I'm mocking it because yeah. it's so it's so small. It's so it, it, it's 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 well meant, well intended, but again, these are large societal problems that require societal uh, responses. And and I I really I have great uh, castigation here for the church, the body of Christ writ large in terms of our collective social response as warriors and families. We we simply have got to do more strategic level thinking and. Um, and employment of options, as Marcus said, both with formation and then with reception of warriors and families and then uh, care for them and their families in the future. Tim, you and Mark have both spoken about what, what Mark has identified as, as one in three, right? Mm -hmm. Pre-deployment, mm -hmm. deployment home. Is there anything in your opinion as a, as a almost 30-year soldier that we, as a, as a military, should be doing in two mm -hmm. To, to help our war fighters with this this moral injury problem or this 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 woundedness problem. Well, here here uh, let let me be candid that that the army that I serve in now uh, and its willingness to even think or talk about these types of issues um, is vastly different than that of the one my father served in. In that army, socially, it was simply the only acceptable response was silence. Um, and everybody knew, his, all, his peers all knew that they were suffering from these, these types of injuries from Vietnam, but they didn't talk about it, right? Um, and so the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard that I serve in now, at least we have the ability to raise these issues to a new light. I think it takes authentic leaders who are willing to be transparent about their own woundedness, morally and spiritually. Um, that, that willingness of senior non-commissioned officers, a command sergeant major or a general officer to stand up and say, I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. That speaks, that has so many uh, layers of meaning throughout the force. Um, I, I, so I'm, I challenge you know, all of my peers to, to be authentic, transparent leaders in that regard. But um, I do want to say that I think that we have to do a better job uh, within the military of of also the same task of moral formation. We can't simply de de devolve into saying um, the you know the, the formation of leaders for ethical right right ethical action is just to teach them the action and they'll do it. Um, that, that may work at times as a as a as a simply rote response, but if we're talking about changing people from the inside out, I think that is a level of uh, development that. Uh, Perhaps we need to address in, in, in the contemporary military. That's my personal opinion. Uh, but uh, uh, as a chaplain and as a pastor, as a religious leader, I would say that that's completely in line with with uh, the teachings of certainly my faith and the Christian tradition, and frankly, yeah, the major religious traditions uh, that are peers of mine. And Mark, finally, um, you've mentioned phase two your view on mitigating moral injury, moral woundedness during phase two. Any, anything to add to what Tim just said? Uh, just that, you know, officers recognize or uh, they know and they should embrace as they generally do the notion that the only order you need to follow is a lawful one, mm. right? Uh, there's an extraordinary book called One Bullet Away by a Marine recon guy named Nathaniel Thick. And he tells a story about, uh, you know, and part of the problem with all of this is these guys have to make moral decisions in a compressed time frame with zero sleep, high stress, 
know, the perfect ingredients to never be able to make a good decision, right? And they've got to do that time and time again. Juiced on dip and Red Bull. Yeah, juiced on dip and Red Bull. I mean, exactly that. And so, so the, the, the quick scenario, and do we have a, a moment? Uh, Nathaniel Fick is a, is a Marine Recon guy. They're, they're going to support a British uh, airdrop over a, an airfield in Iraq. Uh, and they're going to go do reconnaissance first to assess, you know, what is the enemy presence there. They think there's tanks. They think there's, you know, all sorts of heavy weaponry. Uh, turns out for one reason or another, I think the weather, they're not going to do the British parachute drop. Uh, so the guys just decide, okay, recon, go in without reconnaissance. They don't have time to do the reconnaissance. Just go in. And, you know, they're like, you know, okay. So they get in their Humvees, slightly, you know, un completely unarmored, lightly skinned Humvees. They're racing down the road toward the airfield. Their plan if that's what it is, is to crash through the gate, to disperse around the airfield, uh, and then to meet on the other side and to secure it. Um, and as they're racing towards this fence line, uh, a call comes over the radio declaring the entire airfield a free fire zone, uh, which means anything that's on the airfield is considered enemy, shoot on sight. And Nathaniel Fick grabs the mic and he's about to counterman the order. But then he realizes, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't have the information that my commanders have. Uh, I don't really have the big story, the big picture, so I have to trust that these guys know what they're doing. So he sets the mic down. They crash through the gate. You know, they begin to envelop the airfield. They see something in the distance. It looks like people running with weapons. They see flashes of light. They think it might be muzzle uh, fire. Uh, somebody opens up. They meet on the other side, they begin to dig in a perimeter. Pretty soon they look on the horizon and some people are walking toward them, some Iraqis and they're dragging something. And a group of the, the, the Marines go out to, to meet the Iraqis and what they're dragging are two children who have been riddled with uh, uh, obviously American ammunition, 316 or however you say it. Uh, and they realize that they didn't see muzzles, muzzle flashes, it was you know the light flashing off maybe a car, I can't remember what the scenario was. They weren't weapons, the kids were carrying shepherd sticks, and they were trying to run off the airfield because you saw these Marines converging on it. Um, and Fick later on approaches his men and he apologizes. And he says, you know, I should have countermanded the order, today was messed up. And he commits to never allowing that to happen again. That it wasn't enough, his initial commitment to the families of the Marines he was leading in the combat, was that it will bring your, your boys home. But he realized that he meant physically home. And then in that airfield in Iraq, he recognized that that wasn't enough. He had to bring them home spiritually whole, best he could. And so he committed then uh, you know, to a different kind of leadership, one that protected you know, not just the bodies of his men, but their souls. Um, and that might mean putting yourself as a first lieutenant at tremendous personal risk to countermand an order. You know, to say no, free fire zone, no. So that's what I meant by increased physical risk in certain conditions in order to protect the soul, which it, if the moral injury construct is correct, it's the same thing. So it is force protection. It's not, it's not asking for arbitrary arbitrary risk, but yep. other part of it. Timothy Mallard, chaplain, colonel, U.S. Army, office of the chief of chaplains, and Mark Levecki, managing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, you can read his stuff at ProvidenceMag.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, You're Timothy. Thank, Thank you for you. your service. You're welcome. Thank you, brother. <laughs>